Welcome to the Grad School Femtoring Podcast, the place for first-gen students of color to prepare for grad school. This is Dr. Yvette Martinez Fu, and I will be serving as your femtor, providing you with tips and tricks and everything else you need to know to get into and successfully navigate grad school. For over 10 years, I've been helping first-gen students of color get into top grad programs in their field, and I'm really excited to support you on your academic journey too. Welcome back, everyone, to the Grad School Foundering Podcast. Today, I have a solo episode on the topic of what is classism in academia and what to do about it. I think about class, classism, money, financial literacy, all of the time. But the thing that prompted me to want to address this topic in particular and bring it up now actually was a tweet. One of my friends retweeted something and the initial tweet said this, quote, I am so lucky. I basically won the job market lottery by getting a tenure track job as I was finishing up my dissertation. And yet I'm still working a retail job so I can pay rent and save up for moving expenses. And I can't afford the doctoral regalia that I need for commencement. And oh my goodness, <laughs> did I empathize with this person? Not because I got a tenure track job because y'all know I did not, but because as I navigated my own career, I recall getting into 14 thousand dollars of credit card debt to move my family from Los Angeles to Santa Barbara for my first you know quote unquote like salaried position out of grad school and that sounds like a lot of money uh 14k in fact my friend herself said that she too was she said that she was broke for a whole year during her that year transitioning from the PhD to the tenure track job and that she created a GoFundMe page which is just funny because I created a GoFundMe page to try to offset the cost of the credit card debt that I was incurring to break my lease to move to um, Santa Barbara on such short notice uh, knowing that I had asked for relocation support funds from my employer and it was not something that they could provide and, you know, similarly, I think for many of us, as we navigate our careers as working class um, people, as working class people of color, women of color, um, realizing that there's just so many costs that, are, that, that you incur professionally that are forms of institutional classism. And so that's why I wanted to bring up the topic of classism because I think it's important to be aware of how it plays a role in your experience in grad school. Because if you're a first-gen student of color, there's also a good chance that you're also a working class or poor student of color or quote-unquote low income as some of us get labeled in um, university settings. And so let's talk about it. What is classism? When I think of classism, I think of a form of prejudice, a form of discrimination. And in this case, it's 
on those that are of a different social class than others. And the way that it functions is that you're assigning someone a value based on their so socioeconomic class or status. So the higher they are in the status, the higher their value, lower in status, lower their value, and so on. And so um, if you are working class, if you are low income, if you are poor, you face more barriers. And so this is where this concept of institutional classism comes in when we're talking about academia and, and settings in higher education. Now, what is institutional classism? According to the American psychologist, their 2012 issue, institutional classism is the, quote, maintenance and reinforcement of low status by social institutions that present barriers to increase the difficulty of accessing resources. So the key word here is the barriers that we experience. And this is what I wanna highlight because these are the barriers that you may be experiencing over and over and over again as you navigate undergrad, as you navigate grad school and as you navigate the early years in your career, sometimes not even just the early years, it could be your entire career, it could be a, a while um, before you might be financially okay enough to no longer have these things be barriers for you. So what are examples of institutional classism? And just know these things <laughs> I probably have related to, you probably can relate to if you yourself are not middle class or wealthy. One is, yeah, think about a time that maybe you had some sort of professional interview. You had an interview for a job, for a fellowship, for some sort of great opportunity, an internship, and so on. And then having to purchase appropriate, whatever's deemed appropriate, you know, business casual or business professional clothing for that interview. This as a form of classism, because if you don't have the money to be able to afford the clothes, then that's going to be a barrier for you. And then it ties in with how professionalism, the way that people define it, uh, the expectations of professionalism in and of themselves can be considered classist and colonial, like it's colonizing in having to be expected to wear a certain type of clothing that maybe may not be the clothing that makes you feel your best. I mean, in the past, whenever I've conducted interviews, I've always told folks, wear what makes you feel your best, instead of saying what I was told when I was an undergrad, which was wear a button-down shirt, wear slacks or a long skirt, it can't be too short, don't wear a spaghetti strap, don't show too much cleavage, all those things, it's problematic. And we can make an argument for and against why you shouldn't, shouldn't do these things because yes, even though it's problematic, dressing in a certain way does change the way that people perceive you, which is unfortunate. But I'm just letting you know that I'm making you aware that that barrier of having to purchase a certain type of clothing to fit in in this environment, that is a form of institutional classism. There's also this other um, <laughs> barrier that comes up over and over and over again. It's one of the things that I could hardly battle. Um, I could hardly kind of advocate against even in my own role as a staff member. It was so hard to counter this. And this is the reimbursement processes in 
academia and within academic bureaucracy, there's so much red tape in terms of how to make sure that you get funding for things that um, are academic expenses. So even if there are funding opportunities for you to do things like attend conferences or conduct research, you're having to take on these expenses out of pocket. You're having to wait weeks, sometimes months to get that money back. And not everybody has the money up front to pay for it. Not everybody has the credit available or even a credit card just to go there. Because I know a lot of students who were never taught about how to earn credit. And so they never opened up any credit cards. And so they don't have that as an option. So the reimbursement process, the whole like, financial bureaucracy in institutions of higher ed, it's, it's a huge barrier. It's incredibly difficult. I uh, get really frustrated when I think about it because it's supposed to be there to help you. It's supposed to be there to provide you with opportunities to still get the funding, even if it's later. But again, like I said, not, every good, not everybody can pay for things up front and wait for them to get reimbursed. Now, um, another uh, example of institutional classism is when you're invited to professional, develop, professional development opportunities that require that you spend money. Here, I'm thinking about things like academic conferences or formal dinners where you're highly encouraged to attend, but you're also required to pay a fee for admission into these things. You have to pay to um, be able to attend the conference. You have to pay for your own meal if you're attending a fancy dinner. This is another barrier. Another example of, of um, classism in academia can be what I mentioned earlier about the, the tweet that prompted me to want to report on this topic. It's being asked to move to another city for a really great job or professional opportunity without providing you with relocation support funds to do so. It is incredibly expensive to move. You've got to, if you're breaking a lease, you might have fees there. If you are moving into a new place, you have to pay for a security deposit. You've got to pay for your first month, sometimes first month, last month of rent. And then the whole process of moving all of your things over, uh, transportation costs, um, moving your items, if you hire movers, all that stuff, that is money. <laughs> that is uh, very expensive. And then... There's also um, been so many instances where you're encouraged to pursue professional development opportunities when you already are employed, when you already have a job, but you're not provided with the funding for it. So they say, oh, you want to work on your professional development? You want to take this certification? You want to take this course? Um, you know, we want to support you, but we don't have the funding for it. So then you got to pay for that out of pocket. This is incredibly frustrating because policies are not centralized across the board. So you might have folks in the same staff positions in the same faculty positions, um, and even in the same universities and departments, but just because one person asks and the other one doesn't, doesn't then one person gets it and the other one doesn't. Or just because one person knows that this is even 
uh, resource available, they get access to it. It's not presented to everybody equally. And I've um, witnessed how some of my own clients have been able to hire me because they are employees and they have access to professional development funding and they reached out to their supervisor and they advocated for themselves to get academic coaching and that's how they're able to pay for for working with me which is wonderful and I wish that everybody had access to this type of professional development funds and this is just a hint hint to if you are working somewhere don't hesitate to ask if there are opportunities for professional development or professional development funding for your for you to seek out your own opportunities that would be great for you but it's just a reminder that again the the squeaky wheel gets the oil or whatever that that uh, phrase is it's it's unfortunate that you have to be the one to constantly be reaching out and researching and talking to people to find out what is available to you. And if you don't do that, then you won't get access to this. When in actuality, it should be accessible to everyone. And it sh there shouldn't be so many cost barriers for these opportunities. Okay, so we just covered a couple of examples of institutional classism. Now, I want to talk about some more grad school specific instances um, or examples of class differences across cohorts or across peers or mates in grad school. I, I mean, it technically could apply in undergrad as well. Actually, the I, I have some very specific examples of being an undergrad and realizing, oh, wow, I like I don't think I realized that I was working class when I was in K through 12, because uh, most of my peers, we were all we were all either poor or working class and the divide, the difference wasn't as wide. There wasn't as wide of a gap in college. I still remember the first day, and I've probably mentioned this story before because it's one of the few that I actually remember. I have a really bad memory, but I remember the first day of my freshman summer program, I, my mom and my brother dropped me off and they couldn't stay. And I remember having this little um, yellow cart with all of my stuff and arriving into my dorm and having a roommate and her name was Priya. <laughs> And um, and I was there by herself. She was there with her mom, her dad, and her older brother, and they were helping her unpack and get all her stuff, you know, into the dorm on her side of the room. And them asking me, like, where are your parents? Where's your family? I'm like, ah, oh, they have to work. And then asking me, so what, what do your parents do? What does your mom do? What does your dad do? And me, like, after they introduced themselves saying, I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I'm a blah, blah, blah. Oh, my older brother graduated from UCLA. I'm like, oh, how nice she has a brother who has gone through this before, who's helping her out. And then for me to respond, mm, my mom sells religious articles. <laughs> my dad's dead. <laughs> but again, I could, I could just sense that the class difference between her family and my family, the same in my classes, 
uh, a big trigger for me was whenever we would get close to any breaks, whether it was spring break or summer break and having random classmates, at, just overhearing them ask each other, what are you going to do for spring break? Where are you going to go for spring break? And hearing things like, oh, I'm going sailing or, oh, I'm going to Tahiti or, oh, I'm going to blah, 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 places I've never even heard of. <laughs> And thinking, wait, what? You don't go back home to help your parents? Like, you don't go back home to take care of your siblings? You don't go back home to work? Um, so these are all instances in my undergrad experience where I realized, oh, wow, like there are major class differences between myself and my peers. And that continued on in grad school. So in grad school, here are some examples that you may notice in your experience of class differences between yourself and other cohort mates. Perhaps you realize that there are certain colleagues of yours who have family members who are supporting them financially or helping them in some way financially. This could be a spouse, this could be a parent, um, I knew of grad students whose parents paid for their housing or whose parents actually bought them a home and then they used that home and rented it to their roommates and then all of a sudden their roommates were paying for their mortgage so they were living rent free in their own home and accumulating wealth by having their roommates pay their mortgage. That kind of stuff blew my mind. It still kind of blows my mind a little just to know the level of wealth that some folks have. Another example is um, noticing that some colleagues may be able to afford attending multiple conferences out of pocket without necessarily needing to apply to travel grants. Again, you know, if you're like me, I could only afford one major conference at, yeah, one major conference per year because that's what I got funding for. And that's not the case for everyone. You might notice some folks who are like, how in the world are they affording it? They're attending conference after conference after conference, and no one's talking about the elephant in the room, which is how in the world do you afford this? And this is because, you know, some folks, they have savings, they have a trust, they have passive income, they have spouses, they have parents. Again, they have other sources of income that subsidize their time in grad school because no one is making a good living in grad school alone trust me grad school stipends are not enough <laughs> another example um noticing that there are some folks who don't need to take on extra jobs or gigs or side hustles or part-time jobs to be able to make ends meet. Some folks can go to grad school and focus solely on their research and that's great for them but that's not necessarily the case for everyone. And then here, just one more example, just to really reel it in, um, is noticing colleagues who can afford to move to different locations for fellowships, for postdocs, for jobs, without seeming to need to take on any debt. And again, keyword seeming, because some folks are struggling financially and not open about it. And so you'll never really know unless we talk about it. We need to destigmatize, um, you know, class differences in academia. So yeah, I just, I feel like classism, we, I, I openly talk a lot about racism and sexism. And I think that the big elephant in a lot of rooms is also classism. 
we need to talk about it because you cannot work under, under the assumption that someone who looks like you has the same class as you or has the same access and financial means as you. That's not necessarily the case. And there are major differences between folks who have enough to survive and thrive and those who are barely making it, those who are living um, beyond their means or who are in the negative or who don't have enough money to meet their basic needs, who don't have enough money for food or for shelter. And so we have to be on the lookout for that. And if we do have access to financial privileges, we got to use them in favor of supporting others. So um, another thing I wanted to mention when it comes to classism in academia and class differences in academic spaces is that you should not assume that just because someone is employed at a university, just because they are a staff member or a professor, that they are doing okay financially. There are a lot of staff members and faculty who are struggling too. In fact, there are struggling um, staff members and faculty who are currently on their way out. They're exiting out of academia. How do I know this? Because I am one of multiple admin members for a Facebook group that is very popular among academics who are leaving academia. And um, they share a lot of really, um, really open, transparent, traumatizing stories about their time in academia and about the lack of financial support that they're receiving. And that for many of them, they're leaving due to issues of salary compression. They're leaving due to a lack of competitive salaries. They're leaving due to a lack of pay raise or pay raise that doesn't even make up for increases in inflation costs. And so this is just reflective of obviously the larger trend of the great resignation, which I myself am part of. I left my job too, uh, for some of those reasons as well. So just know, again, you can't assume that based on how someone looks and appears and their title that they're doing okay financially, or that their class is different than yours necessarily. So now that you are aware of classism, institutional classism, examples of how it functions in higher ed, what are we supposed to do about it? What are we supposed to do about this elephant in the room? Here, is, um, here are some suggestions of what you can do to learn more and start to take action. The first thing I want to say is to stay informed. And um, I'm going to share something. <laughs> I know it might be controversial to share this. And I think I've mentioned that in, I've mentioned this as a suggestion in previous episodes, but I'm not sure how recently I've done this. Um, but I want to remind you that you can look up your professor's salaries and that it's okay to do that. You can also look up staff salaries. I am aware that, you know, there's the University of California annual wage compensation website. The same goes for the California State University compensation website. I'm not sure about uh, public institutions in other states, but these are just two examples that I personally am aware of. 
It is okay to look up salaries. I know I might feel a little uncomfortable, but why am I asking you to do this? This way you can notice the differences in titles, um, especially professor titles. Is this person an adjunct, a lecturer, an assistant professor, an associate or tenured or full professor? If folks hold the same title, notice the differences in salary. And here it's, it's tough to look this up because you'll notice uh, differences, substantial differences based on race and gender. And it's useful to understand and actually witness for yourself, actually see the numbers yourself about the disparities in salaries within higher ed. Why is it useful to know this? Because then these are some of the issues that you might face in your own career. If you are a person of color. If you are a woman of color, you might face issues of inequitable salaries, of not being paid um, appropriately according to the your worth and the worth of the skill set and knowledge that you have. Again, all of this is just to make you aware, to stay informed. Again, you never know based on, like I said, someone's title or someone's how someone looks or um, your own impressions of them, you, you might never know how much they make. Someone who you had no idea, you're like, wow, they're making a lot more than I thought, or wow, they're making a lot less than I thought. I remember looking up uh, one of my committee members' salaries and then realizing he made almost three times as much as all the other professors that I worked with. And up to that point, I felt really bad whenever I met with this professor and they offered to buy me you know, a beverage, not even at lunch, but like, oh, let me get you a soda. And I thought, oh, no, 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 it's okay. I, I got it. Once I found out how much he made, I was like, go ahead, buy me that and more. Because <laughs> if you make two to three times as much as the other professors, that means he was making oh, uh, 10 times as much as I was as a grad student. It was wild it blew my mind so stay informed y'all it it will um sh it will shed some light on a lot of things when you find out how much people make now the next thing I want to recommend is to make sure that you're not comparing yourself and your progress to someone else in your program to someone else in your field to someone else in a similar trajectory as you because again you have no idea about their financial and economic circumstances for better or for worse than you. Some folks have more help, some folks have less help, some folks have more support, some have less. A lot of people get support um, from family members, from loved ones, and a lot of people don't get support and don't disclose it for fear and because of shame. Um, there are a lot of people who are struggling with really high amounts of debt, whether it's credit card debt, student debt to make ends meet. And again, not talking about it enough because of the shame. So like I said earlier, no one's making a decent living as a grad student. So how are they doing it? What are they, do they have extra part-time jobs? Do they have savings? Do they have someone helping them? You never know. Just focus on yourself. Don't compare your experience to someone else because unless you know them personally and they share their whole lives with you, you really never know. Next um, 
suggestion for what to do about classism in academia is to become an ally, to be a co-conspirator. If you are in a position of power, then mentor someone else, sponsor someone else, mention someone else's name in rooms that they're not at, open the doors of those rooms for those people. If you have the capacity, donate, donate to friends, donate to people you may know, donate to organizations that aligned with your values, um, provide access to more resources. We all can play a role in making a difference for, especially for folks who might not have the same resources as us. Um, another thing is to acknowledge the class implications of any of your decisions. Again, this is tough because, you know, sometimes we work under the assumption that the friends that we make have similar financial um, situations as us, but that's not always true. Sometimes even along similar class divides, um, there might be someone doing a little bit better or having access to a little bit more means than, than someone else. So if you're in charge of organizing an event, for instance, Remind yourself, how are you making it accessible to people across, across class differences? If you're inviting people to events, are you providing a free or low cost option? Or are you providing the opportunity to pay for others? I always appreciate it if I had a friend who made more money than me and if they invited me to something and offered to pay. And it was okay if, again, there was that transparency if they knew they made more money than me and there was no obligation of like I am indebted to this person because they wanted my company <laughs> um, and then along the same lines another recommendation is to just be more open to talking about money to having money conversations with others uh, people won't know if you're struggling if you don't share I um, have benefited a lot from talking about money with my own friends, from disclosing my own debt with my friends, with disclosing my salary among my own friends. There are some friends who are open and comfortable to talk about it and others who aren't. And I try to um, be respectful of people and their comfort levels. But if and when there's an, an opportunity presented where I can talk more about money, I do it because one I'm still learning too. I want to make sure I teach others what I've learned if they're open to it, if they ask me for advice or help or support. So talking about money helps. It can be uncomfortable, but um, it can also make a big difference. Um, another thing I want to suggest, and again, take this with a grain of salt because I know sometimes, sometimes, if we have too many differences, it can be hard to sustain relationships. But if you're open to it, make friends across class divides. I remember making a friend in grad school and um, early on, I realized, oh, wow, like we come from very different class backgrounds. This person like can't afford to travel this person, just their expectations and their lifestyle and the fact that it, they didn't think twice when they went out and ate and all these things. I had to be very, very open and honest and clear and call this person out when they were being classist. And it was a little bit awkward, uncomfortable. We did have disagreements, but you know what? Um, she learned a lot from it. I learned a lot from it. And 
um, she constantly reminded me that she was grateful of me kind of bringing up instances that maybe I disagreed with her or I noticed, hey, this is not, you know, accessible or this is not cool or this, what you, that remark you made sounds classist. Um, so if you're open to it, and then again, it's not just a learning opportunity for them. It's also a learning opportunity for you because I, I realized, wow, like people are living their lifestyles um, under very different ways. And there are different ways of making ends meet. And there are different ways of accumulating a high salary and wealth. And you don't necessarily have to have a high um, education. Like you don't have to have a bunch of credentials or degrees to make a lot of money. So that, that opened up a lot to me realizing, wow, there's a whole world out there outside of my class and what I can afford right now. <sighs> and then one other thing I wanted to mention, and I can't help but mention this because of my own experience moving abroad is yes, right now you are, you might be in grad school. You might be an undergrad. You might be in grad school. You might be on your way out of grad school, starting your career, but just be mindful and be aware of not only the class differences in your work setting or class differences in your community or in your state or even in your country, but thinking about class differences in a global context. Um, you might be working class here, but what happens if you travel to another country? What happens if you move to another country and, all, and that country has a lower salary? Here in Portugal, and don't quote me on this because I don't have the exact numbers, but I believe the average salary is a thousand euros or something like that. And again, I keep saying graduate students don't make a lot of money, but a graduate student salary in Portugal, especially not in the big cities because it can get more pricey here, but especially in other parts of the country that aren't the biggest cities, you are considered middle-class here. You have financial means to do a lot of things. It's a very different context. And so all of a sudden, um, all of a sudden you have shifted classes merely by traveling, by moving, by your presence in another country, in another setting. And what you do may be helping or hurting a local economy and a local community. And so we have to be very, very aware. And I am super duper aware of it. And I don't think a lot of the folks that I have met who have moved here from other countries uh, are necessarily aware of the impact that they're making. If they are, say, coming in as investors, for instance, all of a sudden, they're not just bringing in their income, but they're also making income off of living here. And I have a lot of mixed feelings about that. Uh, maybe it's because I myself am, am not an investor. Um, and that's not necessarily the reason why I moved here. But I, I think it's, it's important to be aware of class differences in any settings that you are part of, because you know there are class differences in your work setting, in your professional setting. There are also class differences in your own families. That's why so many of us who are first gen have these financial responsibilities of having to support our families. And then what happens when we get our jobs, our really good jobs that we've been working our butts off for, and um, all of a sudden you're having to plan and prepare 
for your own retirement? Like, what are you going to do when you can no longer work? Uh, what are you going to do when your parents can no longer work? What are you going to do when your tias and tios and extended family, depending on your family um, and cultural kind of differences, there might be expectations to continue to support not just your immediate, but also your extended family. So again, we need to keep talking about money. We need to keep talking about class. We need to keep talking about class differences and do what we can about it in spaces where we are the ones who hold more privilege we need to use our privilege in service of others in spaces where we have less privilege then you know being open to having these conversations and to teaching others um, and to asking for help when you need it that's it for today's episode i hope that you found it helpful and i will talk to you all next time Thank you so much for joining me in the Grad School Femme Drawing Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or email me your review at gradschoolfemtouring at gmail.com. You can also show your support by going to gradschoolfemtouring.com and joining my mailing list where you'll receive weekly tips, podcasts and blog updates, as well as discounts for my digital downloads, online courses, and much more. One last thing. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Until next time.